outside? Should I run and hide? How do I take my company worldwide? Do you love the law? Did you watch Hee Haw? What's the weirdest thing that you ever saw? What's it like in court? Favorite sport? Can you help with my book report? Is my hair too long? Am I right or wrong? And do you mind if I sing along to anything? Ask Alan anything in the world. What do you think as we come out of this? Um, what do you think the political landscape looks like in, in Memphis, Shelby County in 2021? What are the, what are the issues going to be? Getting our economy back going. I mean, let's just, let's just assume that we, there's a vaccine that's widely distributed in the first quarter of next year, which may be optimistic, but let's just say that happens. Then it's how do we kickstart this can uh, this the economy and every city and every county in the country is going to uh, want to be ahead of everyone else. So we've already started working here on on what steps can we take at that time to really jumpstart this economy and get that momentum back into Memphis. I will say, you know, the you know, a project that you've worked on for now, I guess, a couple of years, the Lowe's Hotel is still on target to be built. They've, um, they're gonna start construction here very soon. So the pandemic has not slowed them down. Our, our uh, convention center is still being uh, redone and should be ready this fall. So there are still projects that move, are moving forward. Uh, I'm not saying all of them are still, because obviously with this going on, it will affect some things, but um, I'm happy to see a lot of these projects still going on. And the Lowe's Hotel is a great example. I, I always joke with people, I'm not wealthy enough to have stayed at a Lowe's Hotel, but I've, I've learned that it's one of the top brands in the country uh, for a lot of reasons. And to get them, we're only, what are we, the 25th or 6th they have in the country? Right. Um, uh, and they're based out in New York for them to recognize the vitality of this economy down here and want to be here uh, is a real statement about Memphis and for the benefit of Memphis. Yeah, it really puts Memphis in the league, in a major league of uh, tourist, uh, tourist cities or convention destination cities to have a, to have a Lowe's hotel. Right. They're, as you know, they're family owned. Uh, they, they build them themselves, they manage it themselves, and it, they don't change it. Uh, like a lot of hotels will change their, what they call the flag or, or what brand it is every eight to 10 years. Lowe's are Lowe's for forever, and it's a really high quality hotel. I was an accomplished high school basketball player. No further than that. It just put a period right there. Had no future at the next level, but, uh, I had a had a lot of lot of fun. Uh, my son and I have been watching the Last Dance. I was on the um, high school team with Horace and Harvey Grant, and uh, we had a pretty impressive high school team. And uh, um, I I always thought I was better than both, but now I guess time has proven that 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 wasn't true. But tell me that at seventeen and eighteen, and I would argue you down. But uh, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with that. We have a lot of fond memories, and it was good for me and my son to kind of watch the last dance, even though uh, everything about hearts wasn't positive on there. It was good to see a high school teammate and a friend uh, and kind of relive in some way his pro career. Well, I heard he cannot, 
he can't take a deposition to save his life. It, that, there, there we go. I say, you know, I did not want to spend my life, you know, chasing the million dollars in sports. And so I kind of focused on academics. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm happy with where I am. And I bet you he's happy with where he is. I, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. You've been involved with the society since 99. And um, uh, have you seen a change in the way uh, society looks at entrepreneurs in that time? You know, I have, and it's, it's really funny. And I guess I, I, what I see different now is that people kind of look at um, the mentality that it's not right for the CEO to be making so much money when the person that's out there actually operating the business. There's such a discrepancy in the amount of money. Um, interestingly, though, I don't think that it really pertains as much to our membership in the Society of Entrepreneurs, because I think that when you are Fred Smith and you started FedEx, I think the sky should be the limit on what you want to make as your compensation. Um, when it's your idea, I think it's a bit different than somebody that works for a publicly traded company and then their salary is so vastly different than the people that are out there, you know, doing the day-to-day -day work. Um, so I think that honestly, the entrepreneur I see is still celebrated. Um, I don't know if I say, see the same as the, corporate giants does that make sense that makes makes a lot of sense and i think uh i think i hear here's an observation that, that i've had and i'd be interested in your perspective on it um i think right now uh, and maybe for the last 10 five to 10 years it's been very trendy to to want to be an entrepreneur you know i'm going to be an entrepreneur and i think a lot of people are doing it without realizing um how much risk is involved and frankly just how much hard work is involved <laughs> yeah, Kimmins Wilson's famous quote, I think, is, you know, you can, um, you're going to be working 12, I, I don't want to mess it up, but it's on my website, but it's something about the fact that, yeah, you think that you, you can only work 12 hours, but it just depends on, I mean, you're working 24-7 is what it is when you're an entrepreneur. You never really are off. I think there's probably a lot of people that since COVID happened and they're working from home and they're finding that they're working strange hours and always thinking about their business because it's some, you know, they're not leaving the office and turning off the computer and going home. I think that's the life of an entrepreneur always. Um, you know, you don't ever, you don't ever stop thinking about how to make it grow your business, what an employee, what a problem with an employee. It's 24-7. Memphians sometimes look at Memphis from a negative lens. I always look at my city from a positive lens. No matter where I go, I am always speaking and talking about Memphis, Tennessee. And if more of us would stop talking down about our city, we could elevate our city in the mind's eye of the people. And if you stop talking down and try to do something about crime, in my own neighborhood, we do things. You know, we don't just talk about it. You know, we build relationships with the police and, and they come to our uh, uh, night out in the community or if we're doing a neighborhood festival. So we create a relationship with them and they become partners in the community. So I, I think it's, it's, it's time out are talking down about Memphis. Let's speak well of the city in which we live, the city that provides a good living for us and our families. 
what's how why would you run down or discount or marginalize the city that supplies provides the supply for you and your family so i don't do that and i tell people don't talk bad about memphis around me <laughs> I, I don't need to be around people who talk bad because that's not something i'm interested in hearing yes we have the same problems that all urban markets have they're no they're no worse than any other major urban market in fact with these activists in memphis this time every other city big has burned but our activists have been thoughtful because they didn't want to see the city burn now that says a lot to me about them and it says a lot to me about the city in which we live uh one thing that uh is really unique about your uh, childhood uh is uh, a fellow that lived across the street from your house that it was a a legendary character in certain circles in uh, in Memphis, and that's a fellow named Jim McWillie, what, uh, who lived to be over 100, fought in the Second World War. Uh, tell me a little bit about Jim McWillie, because he's uh, not just a Memphis character, but, but really kind of, in a lot of ways, a national character. Absolutely. I was very, very lucky to um, meet him. He moved in across the street from me when I was four. Allegedly, I walked up to him as they were unloading uh, the furniture uh, from the trucks into his house and allegedly said to him, hey, you guys got a lot of nice stuff. <laughs> we became friends and he's probably in the top five influences in my life. Uh, I grew up learning the stories about World War II. He took off on over 30 missions. He was a Golden Glove boxer. He was a C uh, CBC grad, uh, class of 1933. And so he was 27 years old and went into training for to be a glider pilot. And D-Day happened and they realized gliders were not a good idea because the death rate was unbelievable because there's no way to pick where you're going to land. And there's no guarantee you're going to be in a field and that you're not just going to stop immediately and that everybody in the glider would fly forward and it just didn't work out well. So shortly thereafter, he was... Uh, reassigned to learn radios and became a gunner and a radio man on uh, then what would become the Army Air Corps and took off for 30 missions to drop bombs over Germany. And obviously between that and the guy, uh, Golden Gloves boxer experience, he was a huge influence on how a man should live, in addition to my dad. But he got me involved in community service at age 13. I started working the St. Peter's Home for Children Fourth uh, of July picnic with him. I didn't understand what community service was until he said, well, I'll, be, I'll, I'll come pick you up in the morning. And he called my parents and they started giggling. He picked me up at four. <laughs> <laughs> we we roll over, get some breakfast, and then go hit the picnic. And then he brought me home at, at four o'clock the next morning after 
the whole day of picnic. So we helped set it up and we helped close it down. But then I started meeting everybody in the Catholic community, uh, just hanging out with him and uh, met Dick Hackett long before he was married. Um, and just started getting a sense of what it means to be involved in the community. Around that time, the bishop uh, of the then brand new Memphis diocese hired Mr. McWilly to be the number one businessman for the diocese. And so he raised the money for all of the schools out in the Shelby County that didn't exist uh, in 1971. And so he, he bought, the, raised the money, bought the land, negotiated the deals, built the schools and crafted what would become the Catholic Diocese of Memphis. And in that process, he met everyone. And this was after his career had ended in uh, automobile financing where he met everybody. Later, he became chair of MLG and W board, uh, still stayed active in many, uh, until he passed away in uh, 101, a couple of years ago stayed with his hands in the in the Catholic Diocese making whatever contribution he was asked to make. But yeah, I had to go uh, at an early age, go move furniture over at the bishop's house. You know, if there, <laughs> if there was a need for cheap labor, I got grabbed and, 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 and went to go do it. But ultimately what I learned from him was community service is not an option. It's something that is required of us and gives us in return back a lot more than we put into it. I did create the Ask Alan theme song and it, the final version was just finished uh, last night, as you know. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, my father was musical and all my sisters are musical. And so um, I don't have a whole lot of formal training, but um, these days, you know, with computer programs, um, you know, anything from GarageBand to other programs, you can um, record and put down your stuff. And um, and with keyboard, MIDI keyboards that hook up to the computer, you can play almost any instrument, even if you don't play that instrument. So um, that's been real nice. But yeah, I do have a little um, band with my sister and my sister Molly and um, two other members. We are the Zoo Girls. It's um, Zoo Girls Music. And um, we have fun, play at little coffee shops around town or um, Imagine Beacon Cafe, the farmer's market, places like that um, when they're open. But mm. like many other people, we haven't been playing live music for a little while. So I've been doing a little more production projects. I do some music for uh, film. I've done um, some of the soundtracks for some of Willie Bearden's films, um, documentaries, things like that. And that's been a really good time. I love working on that. Are you all on like Spotify or anything? No, uh, you're lucky I'm on a Zoom call. <laughs> but yeah, we'll figure that stuff out. Um, probably um, Anna, who's the, one of the younger members in our band, she probably knows how to do uh, all of that. But we'll, we'll get there. Um, we, we love playing out with audiences and um, writing songs. And so um, we'll, we'll figure out the electronic side of things as we go. What was it about cities in particular that, that drew your fascination initially and then became a, became a, a career for you? Well, um, I, every Saturday when I was in, uh, you know, seventh, eighth grade, I would come down, I would get on the 13 Lauderdale bus 
by myself. You can do that in those days. And I came downtown on Saturday. There would be a fashion show and there would be uh, music and all kinds of things going on on Saturdays. And um, I remember walking down Beale Street and, you know, it was so weird and compelling to me. I, I just, I just fell in love. I also had this view from afar of uh, Greenwich Village, you know, all about the folk music scene. I, it sounds so crazy, but um, it, it was that in the, in the, and experiencing downtown at a young age. I remember uh, even sitting on the riverfront, in fact, it's my first memory of the riverfront, sitting and watching the Cotton Carnival barge come in. And I mean, my family, let me just say, was like, we weren't in any secret societies. We would never aspire to be in a secret society. But it was fascinating being an observer, right? With that barge coming in and all lit up and the fireworks and the, you know, the people getting off and everything glittering and sparkling. And it was just like magical. I, I've always thought cities were magical. And it's funny if you see my vacation photos, all vacation photos are like of cities, like, and, and things about cities. I was telling the staff just earlier, we were working on a redoing a, a piece of the riverfront. And I was saying, well, let me, because I have many pictures of public restrooms in parks. And it's like, they said, you do? And I said, yes, <laughs> I do. I photograph those and for a reason. So I'm kind of obsessed with cities and the details. Um, I, and I, you know what? It's the mix of people that I love. I mean, it's a miracle. Think about it. It's a miracle that 99% of the time, this crazy diverse, you know, place called a city, people get along. They actually kind of follow the rules. They don't bump into each other. They drive their cars and don't run into each other. You know, they don't say nasty things. They say, hello. I go down to the riverfront every afternoon with my dog and people, hi, how are you? Oh, good. How are you? Oh, let me touch your dog. Can I touch your dog? People are so sweet. And the fact that it works 99% of the time is kind of a miracle. I love that. Is there some uh, hurdle that once they get, once that entrepreneur or that company gets over the hurdle, then growth and innovation are, are easier? You would think that's true. It's more a case there's like five or six hurdles. Okay, there are definite. There's studies that have been done, and um, if if anyone on this call wants to um, reach out to me, I have kind of a chart of the stages of growth that another company researchers have figured out. And what's interesting about it, it's not how much money, it's how many people. So zero to 10, you know, all companies basically have the same set of problems, but the way you deal with them is different based on complexity. And complexity is related to how many numbers you have of people, not to the revenue. So zero to 10, 10 to 25, 25 to 50, 50 to 100, and then over 100, 
that's those are the hurdles and there's a specific set of challenges that you face at each set of the way and now my memory about all those challenges is escaping me because there's a lot there every one of those companies is dealing with the same thing but the way you get it done in the ceo's role changes dramatically from you know one to ten the ceo is driving everything you know one you have 100 employees the ceo isn't driving everything so i hope that kind of it's it's a good question that you asked i hadn't thought about that but it's very much related to i can give this chart to somebody and say so how many employees you got okay so you're right here are these the problems you're facing and they go oh yeah how did you know that <laughs> I didn't, uh, I don't know, I don't think I ever started the second half of Coach Curtis. Uh, but I would tell you this, it was always, we always came out way earlier than we would in the halftime, and we would always make sure we got out on the floor first. And I'll tell you, nothing, nothing made Dana more mad than when an official gave it away. Yeah. When we were lined up the wrong way, and the official goes, no, you're going that way. And I mean, Dana would be livid uh, because of that, but it's amazing how often it worked. We actually did it a couple of times with Coach Fitch's head coach, and it worked. I remember seeing an interview with Denny Crum, and they asked him about that, and he said, he says, let me tell you something. I, he says, I'll never forget, we were at Memphis, coming out of the half. He said, the last thing I said to our guys before we left the, the locker room at halftime was, don't fall for the Dana Kirk misdirection play. And he said, damned if we didn't come out, and line up, and they ran it on us. He says, yeah. I don't know what it was, but it was a brilliant play. It's like you you were talking about Kirk being a great tactician. It's a simple thing that relies on, I guess, uh, human psychology of uh, just kind of, you know, following what uh, other people do. Yeah, if, if, if you weren't aware of us doing that, we could just totally fool you. Uh, but I, I, would, I, I was like, I mean, I know in their scouting plan, they know we do this. They're gonna do it. And whenever it worked, I would be a mouse. Like, Are you kidding? They fell for this again. <laughs> but but it was you know, the interesting part about it with Dana to Allen was we didn't do it all the time. You know, he picked and chose uh, when we did it. And I'm sure he did that based on how that game was going, how the environment and the atmosphere was. And so it wasn't that we did it every game. It was different games where he decided, let's do wrong way. Uh, right. and, and that would be it. And, and, and I would tell you, 95% of the time it worked. Yeah, unless the unless the, the officials gave it away. Right, right, exactly. It was just such a natural fit. Um, back in those days, that was the beginning of the uh, of the Federalist Society. Um, it, it just had started its birth. And uh, I had been introduced to, to them and it was just intellectually to to listen to different sides talking about the law you know law law was was so exciting and so so much fun when you were you know in law school other than being poor you know and uh but and not having anything but but the conversations and the the intellect of basically going and having coffee with your friends and that you know them having a different aspect of the law 
and yourself having a different aspect of the law, but being able to have a cup of coffee and really have great dialogue was just the most thrilling and fun thing in the world to just sit and discuss uh, legal issues and in a very uh, um, civil, you know, manner that it just, it's just so, it was so cool. It was so much fun. Our mission is to empower every youth for positive results. And how do we do that? We do that in many ways. One, we want to provide them opportunities that would carry with them into adulthood. I mean, understanding work ethics, the importance of going to school, you know, how to be respectful, all those components. And we start with our young people at the age of 14, and we go up to the age of 22. Now, we have two very unique programs in the Office of Youth Services. One is called Employ, which is our six-week summer experience. And then we have our MAP program, M-A-P, which stands for Memphis Ambassadors Program. You know, having those two programs has really been a big factor in helping our young people do things positively during the summer months when they're not in school. This past summer, because of the pandemic, we were able to go virtually. You know, we didn't want to have, we wanted to have a program, number one. You know, everybody was trying to take the easy way out. Well, we're not going to be able to have a program this summer. But the mayor wanted one, I wanted one. And what we wanted to do, because of some of those seniors who had bought prom, prom outfits and invitation to graduations and everything, and were not going to be able to do any type of ceremony, we just felt that we should do something to at least put some money back into their pocket. So we did everything virtually this year uh, through the help of SCS school. And we were able to get about 1,600 some students employed over the summer virtually. Now we didn't send them to a job site because of the pandemic, but we really horn in on the hard and soft skills training that they need to be successful. You cannot get enough of hard and soft skills training.